Day after tomorrow, gentlemen, we'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pool's the casino. Big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a gamble. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. When you come from modest beginnings, work hard and eventually acquire wealth, it can change a person. Exposure to the finer things in life can develop a taste for them. A great example of that would be Steve Wynn and his fine art collection. There's nothing wrong with it, it's simply a documented fact. Bob Stupak reacted to wealth like someone who lived in a trailer park, won the lottery, and decided to spoil themselves by buying a double wide and a Mustang. I know that sounds like I'm judging him or calling him low class, but it isn't. If anything, it's a compliment. Despite how financially successful he would become, it never changed him. Money just gave him the ability to do more of the things he already loved doing. And what he liked doing was winning your money. Not just playing the odds, outwitting you. And if you looked foolish as a result, well, that was just icing on the cake. For a guy without a high school education, Bob was brilliant at finding the gray area and living in it. Bob Stupak's father, Chester, lost his life savings as a teenager in a back alley craps game. But that experience earned him two life lessons. First, how irresistible the game of dice is. And second, the person who wins the most is the guy running the game. With those two pieces of information in hand, he went into a corner store, bought a pair of dice, and for the rest of his life, ran various illegal gambling operations around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Fortunately, Pittsburgh was just about as corrupt a place as Chicago, New York, and L.A. were during the first half of the 20th century. The trick to running an illegal gaming operation was paying off the right police, politicians, and judges. That, and there was to be no trouble, no violence, and the game needed to be kept behind closed doors. In addition, he had to make sure not to provoke the organized crime element in the area while simultaneously running an operation that was in direct competition with their own. Fortunately, the mafia element in Pittsburgh at the time was considered mismanaged compared to those in other major cities. It was referred to as the Mickey Mouse Mafia of the East. The original Mickey Mouse Mafia at the time was in LA, hence the inspiration for the name and the East designation. To Chester, it was all just part of the game and just about as much fun. This isn't to say that Chester didn't have his share of legal troubles, but it was all for show. From time to time, when police needed to make a public showing of cracking down on illegal gambling, it was Chester's place they would bust, which equated to little more than a night off and parking citations. In some cases, Chester wouldn't even be the person arrested. Often during a bust, Chester would pretend to be just another patron playing the game. Despite police knowing exactly whose operation this was, when police asked, other players would claim responsibility. Knowing Chester would always take care of the patsy paying all their legal fees and using his connections to reduce the charges, 
never allowing that person to spend any time in jail. Eventually, the U.S. government took it upon themselves to address the organized crime problem across the country. Tax evasion was the most common way to bust those who were elusive. After the U.S. government was finally able to convict Al Capone of something in 1931, a series of legislative measures were passed to further aid in organized crime prosecutions. In 1934, the federal taxation and registration law was passed, requiring weapons commonly used by members of organized crime to be registered so that they could be taxed as business expenses. In 1951, the IRS enacted a law that required professional gamblers to purchase a $50 federal gambling tax stamp and pay 10% tax on their annual winnings. They were both intentional catch-22s, because if you did either, it would alert the IRS that you were participating in illegal activities. If you didn't, you could be busted for tax evasion. That's how they got Chester. In 1964, he was convicted of running an illegal gambling operation and sentenced to four months in prison. Eventually, the laws were repealed as unconstitutional in 1965, clearly violating a person's Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate themselves. All of those convicted as a result of those regulations were overturned. Chester's son Bob inherited not only his love for the game, but his passion for running such an enterprise. By the age of nine, Bob was gambling daily. At age 16, as soon as he could legally stop going to school, he did. Instead, he made money selling cheap watches bar to bar, as well as dabbling in loan sharking. When he wasn't doing that, Bob loved motorcycles and started drag racing them, crashing more than a few times, eventually breaking both his knees. But that didn't stop him from returning to action as soon as he could. Looking to find a way to combine both his passions being famous and making money, Bob tried to go the Elvis route and became a pop singer. He was signed to United Artists, changed his name to Bobby Starr, and began performing locally. Since he wasn't a very good singer, he developed a shtick of bringing a full-grown cheetah on stage with him. When one club banned him from performing with the cat, Bob used the opportunity to get the attention of the media by bringing the cat outside of the club, tying it up at a parking meter, and dropping a dime in it. At the age of 19, after recording eight different songs, none of which got much attention, Bob decided to move on to other opportunities. Like most young men trying to find out what they wanted to do with their life, Bob enlisted in the military, specifically the National Guard. However, it didn't take long before he became known as the private with the craps game. During this time, he learned that he could take advantage of people who didn't know the basic math of a game, but still wanted to play. He would adjust the odds of profits in his favor while explaining it in a way that made players believe it was to their advantage. Once his time with the military was over, Bob knew that eventually everyone who ran an underground gambling operation got busted. So he looked for another angle to make money, coupon books. He worked with local businesses to attract customers to their establishment by getting them to offer discounted meals and services in his coupon book. Then he would put all he collected into a book and sell it to customers, advertising it as hundreds of dollars of savings for a fraction of the cost. It was an immediate success and became a business model he would become synonymous for, for better or worse. Bob Stupak visited Las Vegas for the first time in 1964. He recalls falling in love with the city the moment he sat down at a restaurant at 4 a.m. and a waitress asked him if he would like breakfast, lunch, or dinner. To celebrate the success of his coupon book, 
1965, Bob flew to Vegas, dropped off his bags at the Caesars Palace Bell Desk, took out a $10,000 marker, and hit the craps table, where he lost it all. He went back to the credit manager, got another $2,000, and promptly lost that as well. Within one hour of arriving, Bob lost $12,000. So he turned around and flew home. Stewing over his bad beat, on the flight home, Bob decided he wanted to own a casino in Las Vegas. Not only would it allow him to make a living legally in the gaming industry, it was the only way that he was ever gonna make money in Las Vegas. So back in Pittsburgh, Bob made money during the day with his coupon books, and at night, bankrolled craps games. He would go to the local Stardust Lounge, bring people to the craps game in the basement of his family's home, wait for them to lose all their money, then take them back to the lounge and buy them a drink. He would take horse racing bets for people, but instead of placing the bets at the track, he would pay off the winners from his own bankroll and keep the losing bets. Sensing it was only a matter of time before he got busted, Bob decided to take his coupon business to Australia in 1965. While in Australia, Bob got married, had a kid, and was divorced all in two years' time. In 1971, he found his second wife and decided he'd made enough money to return to Las Vegas and attempt to live his dream of owning a legal casino. With $120,000 in cash and another $180,000 from his father and friends, Bob filed for a gaming license with the Nevada Gaming Control Board. While looking for a home in Vegas, Stupak reached out to Caesars Palace ownership looking for a deal on room rates for an extended stay, making it clear he wasn't there to gamble. Caesars ownership knew better than that and agreed to $10 per day. In no time, Bob found himself at the craps table burning through his bankroll. This time he was able to come to his senses before he lost it all. Realizing he couldn't resist the temptation of a casino, he relocated to the Bally High Motel on Desert Inn Road. While it would take some time for Bob to find success as a casino owner, his discount coupon book was a big success for him in Vegas almost immediately. With so many restaurants competing for tourist dollars, it was easy to convince them to be a part of something intended to filter business to their establishments. His first attempt to own a casino in Vegas was as a partner with a group looking to purchase the Hacienda. However, as the deal was being finalized, Stupak was replaced by another investor, a company called the Argent Corporation. They would eventually go on to be affiliated with the skimming bust at the Stardust, a story partially retold in Martin Scorsese's film, Casino. Instead, Bob purchased Nishan's Cocktail Lounge and Supper Club on Convention Center Drive from Kirk Kerkorian's older brother, Nish. Bob renamed it Chateau Vegas, however quickly learned how difficult it was to make a profit running a restaurant. Accepting it was nearly impossible to buy a place in the heart of the Strip without connections like the Teamsters Union, Bob began to explore the next best thing. He purchased 1.5 acres of land at 2000 Las Vegas Boulevard originally home to a car dealership for $218,000. When Bob would proudly proclaim that he purchased land on the Strip, those in the industry immediately mocked him, reaffirming the common understanding that the Strip ended at Sahara Avenue. Regardless, Bob wasn't discouraged. Thanks to poor city planning, three major roads intersect with one another right in front of his location, Las Vegas Boulevard, Main Street, and St. Louis Avenue. In 1973, he was licensed to operate the Million Dollar Historic Gambling Museum, 
The place was a collection of gaudy, repurposed ideas from other properties. Inspired by Binion's million dollar display, Stupak created the Wall of Cash, which equated to about $60,000 in $1 bills. He also offered visitors the chance to see what the rare $100,000 bill looked like. While that bill really existed for a time in the U.S. currency, Stupak would later go on to confirm that what he had on display was just a copy of the real thing. Quick to defend accusations of false advertisement, Bob would clarify that he never said he was displaying an authentic $100,000 bill. His attraction offered people the chance to see what one looked like, and his replica looked like what a real $100,000 bill looked like. Misleading technicalities would not only be a running theme in future Stupak endeavors, it would become the very definition of the kind of business practices Vegas didn't want associated with their gambling industry. The museum would even claim to offer the world's largest jackpot, $250,000 via a slot machine that paid out about as often as it was legally required to, and probably just slightly less than that. While his promotions would attract attention, the fact that his casino only housed 15 slot machines made it difficult to attract repeat visitors. Not to mention, people who ventured that far north strip were more interested in the strip clubs and massage parlors that dominated the economic geography of the area. Less than two months after opening, on May 21, 1974, the Million Dollar Historic Gambling Museum caught fire. Stupak, with tears in his eyes, was hysterical at the scene, making sure to share his emotions with reporters. The entire situation was considered suspicious before the fire was even put out. First, when the fire started, there were no customers in the building. Next, witnesses had conflicting reports about where the fire started. Also, during a recent inspection in which the gambling museum received multiple fire code violations, the Las Vegas fire chief informed Bob he needed to install firewalls to avoid the rapid spread of a fire should one ever occur. Kind of exactly like this fire was spreading. Lastly, at the scene, Bob told the fire chief he didn't have insurance on the building. However, it was discovered later that it was fully insured at the time, even if what he had barely covered his financial investment in the property. The damage to the building was estimated between a half a million and two million dollars. With the fire department declaring the cause to be arson, the insurance company refused to pay out Stupak's claim. While he battled with the insurance company, in the fall of 1974, Bob purchased the Cinnabar Lounge, located to the east of where the California is today, just off Fremont Street. He promptly renamed it The Vault. It became the place dealers in the area would stop off at and have a few drinks before heading home. Bob learned the way to get them to stay longer was to offer food. However, The Vault didn't have a kitchen and it was too small to renovate a space to add one. So instead he went out, gathered menus from all the restaurants in the area and would pick up food for people. In an attempt to draw more people to his place, he began experimenting with variations on traditional table games. One idea that backfired was offering blackjack with both dealer cards face up for half an hour a day. While it worked at filling the tables, the moment the half an hour was up, the tables cleared. The experiment only lasted two days before he pulled the plug, costing him around $600 in losses. Bob and his insurance company eventually agreed out of court to a $300,000 settlement in the spring of 1975. In August of 75, Stupak sold the vault and purchased the lease on the strip club Glitter Gulch, 
in the heart of Fremont Street for $100,000, with the option to buy for another $800,000 from Jackie Gaughan and Mel Expert. He added some slot machines and renamed it Bob Stupak's Glitter Gulch. In 1980, Bob commissioned the development of a sign he hoped would not only draw traffic to Glitter Gulch, but become an iconic addition to the famous Fremont Neon Skyline. She would be known as Vegas Vicky, a busty cowgirl intended to complement the already well-known Vegas Vic sign diagonally across the street from one another. Just like Vic, originally she featured mechanical moving parts, specifically a leg that kicked. However, shortly after she was installed, there were problems with the mechanics. Rather than spend the money to address the problem, Bob decided to leave it, and she never kicked again. Due to her proximity to the casino Sassy Sally on Fremont Street, later known as Mermaids, a common misconception is that Vicky was originally named Sassy Sally and a part of the property's marquee. However, there is no truth to that. She has always been Vegas Vicky and always located above Glitter Gulch. In 1978, Bob was ready to build on the strip again. However, with the negative stigmatism the arson accusations created, he had trouble getting anyone to loan him money. After months of persistence, E. Perry Thomas Valley Bank agreed to loan Stupak $1.5 million if he could raise the rest of the projected $3 million it would take to build his new project. The thinking was they would never need to make good on that loan because there was no way Bob would be able to get the rest of the money. Knowing the power of E. Perry's name, Bob used it to leverage other lenders, insinuating he already had the loan, while not mentioning it was contingent on his ability to fully fund the project. And it worked. In July of 1978, he broke ground on what would become known as Bob Stupak's Vegas World. 13 months later, at an advertised cost of $7 million, he opened the eight-story, 102-room, outer space-themed hotel casino. It's important to point out that $7 million was the advertised price of the property because, in fact, Bob confirmed in an interview later that it only cost $3 million to build. He claims he exaggerated the price just like everyone in Vegas does. The interior of Vegas World was described as a cross between a brothel and 2001 A Space Odyssey. The interior walls were lined with mirrors, making it not only difficult for guests to find their rooms, but they couldn't find the bathrooms. An astronaut and spaceship hung from the ceiling of the casino, and it featured a Starship Enterprise big six-wheel that took an electronic motor to spin. On the outside of the building, he had a mural painted showing cards falling through space with Earth in the background. While the media supported Bob's claims that Vegas World would extend the strip beyond the Sahara, the truth was, it became known as the gateway to Naked City, the seedy part of the city largely populated by hookers, drug addicts, low-cost temporary housing, and violence. Bob worked with city officials to try and clean up the area, buying some of the surrounding slums as city building inspectors busted them for all sorts of violations, but their efforts yielded few results. As is common in just about every Vegas origin story, Bob's bankroll was tight in the beginning. Friends recall Bob not having enough nickels and quarters to fill all the slot machines when Vegas World opened. The fear of a large hot drink on any given night threatened to shut the place down. Stories of high-stakes card games with the deed of the property on the line and pawn shop transactions to keep the doors open all became part of the early legend of Bob Stupak. On more than one occasion, Bob was forced to go to close friend Jack Binion to get a short-term loan to cover losses. Regardless, 
Vegas World made a concerted effort to be known as a property that accepted all bets, no matter how large they were, a marketing ploy he learned from Benny Binion. To promote that, he created the slogan, the sky is the limit, and made it the property's marquee. Bob increased Table Max bets to 2,000 a hand, double what Caesar's Palace was offering at the time, who was considered to be the gold standard on the strip for high-stakes gambling. Despite his unstable financial condition, Bob paid off his construction loans on Vegas World in a year. Bob would study the psyche of a gambler, trying to understand what made them want to play and what made them want to stay at a property. Regardless of how well he learned to cater to the Vegas visitor, the same challenge remained, his location. He would advertise unique variations of traditional games, including face-up blackjack, no-zero roulette, and crapsless craps. It was during this time that a newspaper, advertising Vegas World's sideshow games, attempted to make fun of Bob by referring to him as the Polish Maverick. Instead of finding a fence with it, Bob liked it and adopted it, playing into the dumb Pollock stereotype to give players the idea that they might be taking advantage of good old Bob. Make no mistake, every game that appeared to give the player the advantage over the house had built-in protection. For example, in double exposure blackjack, a game that allowed players to see both the dealer's cards, all ties went to the house instead of back to the player. Expert 021 was a single deck blackjack game that dealt down to the very last card. It had a house edge of 2.3%, and while this attracted card counters, the trade-off in this game was blackjacks paid even money. In its first year of operation, Vegas World made $7 million. While the United States was in a bad economic recession in the early to mid-80s, Bob was able to invest in expansion because his casino never felt the effects. While other casinos were cutting back their comps, Vegas World offered deals too good for middle America to pass up. In July of 1982, Vegas World added a 24-story hotel tower with 339 rooms. In 1983, he added a 340-seat showroom and expanded the casino floor from 16,000 to 27,000 square feet. Bob was always looking for an angle to draw attention to his property. While catering to a high roller one night, he found himself squeezing fresh orange juice just to keep the gambler happy. Feeling like more of a sucker than a Vegas casino owner, the idea for a persona came to him. The world's biggest sucker. A wild card that would bet on anything. He even got Ripley's Believe It or Not to label him the man who would bet on anything. It started by risking huge sums of money on long shots and offering point spreads on games half what experts recommended. He once bet Donald Trump a million dollars that he could beat him. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Thank you.